Brought to you by GSK. Learn about commercial coverage for Shingrix, Zoster Vaccine Recombinant Adjuvanted, by visiting coverageshingrix.com. Hello and welcome to the June 6, 2023 Annals of Internal Medicine podcast. I'm Dr. Christine Lane, Annals Editor-in-Chief, and I'll be sharing a quick summary of the new material you'll find if you go to annals.org. There's a lot of new material, so let's get right to it. Given the almost weekly mass shootings and individual episodes of intentional firearm-related deaths or injury to self or others, it seems pretty clear that firearm injury is a public health crisis in the United States. Organizations, including the American College of Physicians and Annals of Internal Medicine, have called for the consideration of long-term consequences of firearm violence. Interpersonal firearm violence survivors report significantly worse health and functioning compared with the general population and other mechanisms of traumatic injury. Yet there is limited work examining self-reported mental and physical health consequences of firearm violence for survivors acutely after injury, thwarting healthcare systems' ability to comprehensively intervene. Researchers from Medical College of Wisconsin studied 87 survivors of firearm injury between 2014 to 2016 and 2017 to 2021 to describe the mental health symptoms and health-related quality of life of firearm injury survivors. Participants were evaluated at baseline and at six months after injury. The authors found that participants experienced worsened symptoms of depression, anxiety, and post-traumatic stress disorder. Participants also reported poor health-related quality of life at both baseline and six months from injury, but their quality of life did not worsen during this period. According to the authors, this preliminary study highlights the needs to better understand and manage the mental health consequences of firearm injury. They suggest that early screening and comprehensive care may improve outcomes in this at-risk population. Next is a cost-effectiveness analysis of screening for chronic kidney disease that found that screening all adults in the United States starting at age 35 could be cost-effective for the quality of life years gained. Chronic kidney disease is a common, costly cause of morbidity and mortality, affecting approximately 15% of U.S. adults. It is often a clinically silent disease until it progresses to advanced stages or kidney failure. Currently, Medicare spends $87 billion annually on care for chronic kidney disease and an additional $37 billion for care of patients with kidney failure requiring kidney transplant therapy. The characteristics of disease progression and cost associated with late-stage kidney disease make screening for early-stage chronic kidney disease a high priority. While experts have been unable to agree whether screening for early-stage chronic kidney disease improves clinical outcomes, sodium glucose co-transported 2 inhibitors are changing the discussion. Researchers from Stanford University conducted a cost-effectiveness analysis of adults aged 35 years and older who were screened for albuminuria with and without SGLT2 inhibitors to the current standard of care for chronic kidney disease. The authors assessed cost, quality-adjusted life years, and incremental cost-effectiveness ratios. The authors found that screening U.S. adults once and adding SGLT2 inhibitors between ages 35 and 75 prevented dialysis or transplant in 398,000 people and screening every 10 years until age 75 years costs less than $100,000 per quality of life year saved. The recommended diagnostic strategy in the emergency department for patients with suspected pulmonary embolism follows three steps. Evaluation of clinical probability, followed if needed by D-dimer measurements, 
followed with positive by chest imaging, including CT pulmonary angiography. The use of CT pulmonary angiography and subsequent diagnosis of pulmonary embolism have increased substantially since the 1990s, raising concerns about the risk of overuse of CT pulmonary angiography and overdiagnosis of pulmonary embolism. Overdiagnosis is associated with complications, including kidney injury, anaphylactic reaction, long-term complication from radiation exposure, and unnecessary anticoagulation treatment. Since 2010, several decision rules have been developed to reduce the need for chest imaging, either by alleviating the need for D-dimer testing to rule out pulmonary embolism, or by raising the D-dimer threshold for chest imaging. Researchers from Sorbonne University in Paris and Royal London Hospital conducted an analysis of persons with CT pulmonary angiography performed for suspected pulmonary embolism in the emergency department in intervals between January 2015 and December 2019. The authors included 8,970 CT pulmonary angiograms in their analysis. They observed that emergency departments were using the studies more often and more frequently diagnosing pulmonary embolism, including low-risk pulmonary embolism. The authors also observed an increase in ambulatory management and a lower proportion of intensive care unit admissions. The authors believe that their findings do not suggest increasing overuse of CT pulmonary angiography, but instead suggest a trend towards diagnosing more mild pulmonary emboli. Apixaban and rivaroxaban are the most prescribed anticoagulants to prevent ischemic strokes in patients with atrial fibrillation. However, amiodarone, the most prescribed medication to maintain sinus rhythm in patients with atrial fibrillation, inhibits apixaban and rivaroxaban elimination possibly increasing anticoagulant-related risk for bleeding. Researchers from Vanderbilt University School of Medicine conducted a retrospective cohort study of 91,590 Medicare beneficiaries aged 65 years and older with atrial fibrillation who were treated with anticoagulants and antiarrhythmic drugs. 54,977 participants were treated with amiodarone and 36,613 with flecainide or sotalol. The authors found that patients treated with amiodarone experienced a 44% increased risk for bleeding-related hospitalizations compared to patients using plecanide or sotalol. However, they found that these patients had no increased risk for ischemic stroke or systemic embolism. The authors note that the risk was most pronounced in patients taking rivaroxaban or with known risk factors for hemorrhagic complications of anticoagulant treatment. Next is an observational study of more than 329,000 Medicare admissions that found that older persons receiving hospital care from an allopathic or an osteopathic physician experienced similar quality and cost of care. Medical education in the United States falls under two types of programs, allopathic medical schools that award a doctor of medicine or MD degree, and osteopathic schools that award a doctor of osteopathic medicine or DO degree. Approximately 90 and 10% of practicing physicians in the U.S. have MD and DO degrees, respectively. Education requirements between programs are very similar, but osteopathic programs focus on holistic care and physical therapy-like manipulation of the body. Osteopathic physicians are also more likely to practice in rural and underserved areas and pursue careers in primary care compared with allopathic physicians. 
Researchers from the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA and the University of Tokyo studied 329,510 Medicare admissions between 2016 and 2019 to determine whether quality and cost of care differ between hospitalized patients treated by allopathic or osteopathic physicians. Of these admissions, 77% and 23% received care from allopathic and osteopathic physicians, respectively. The data showed no clinically important differences in mortality, readmission, length of stay, and healthcare spending between the two groups. The findings were consistent across a range of medical conditions and across severity of patients' illness, suggesting that any differences between allopathic and osteopathic medical schools, either in training or the types of students who enroll, are not associated with differences in cost or quality of care in the inpatient setting. According to the authors, these findings should be reassuring for policymakers, medical educators, and patients. An accompanying editorial highlights the similarities between allopathic and osteopathic practices because of workplace and educational standardization. However, the authors also highlight that despite these similarities, the medical field has been reluctant to accept osteopathic medical students into their preferred specialties, causing increasingly pronounced disparities in competitive programs. Information about the effectiveness of oral antivirals in preventing short- and long-term COVID-19-related outcomes during the Omicron surge is limited. The next study aims to fill some of this information gap by using target trial emulation to estimate the effectiveness of nermotrelivir, ritonavir, and malnupiravir for the outpatient treatment of COVID-19. The researchers used observational data to emulate three target trials comparing matched patients who received nermotrelivir, ritonavir versus no treatment, malnupiravir versus no treatment, and nermotrelivir, ritonavir versus malnupiravir. Patients were veterans in VHA care at risk for severe COVID-19 who tested positive for SARS-CoV-2 in the outpatient setting during January and February 2022. The outcomes of interest were all-cause 30-day hospitalization or death and 31 to 180-day incidents of acute and long-term care admission, death, or post-COVID conditions. Participants were 90% male with a median age of 67 years, and 26% were unvaccinated. Compared to matched untreated controls, nermotrelivir ritonavir treated participants had a lower 30-day risk of hospitalization, 27 per 1,000 versus 41 per 1,000, and death, 3 per 1,000 versus 14 per 1,000. Among persons who were alive at day 31, further significant reductions in 31 to 180-day incidents of acute or long-term care admission or death were not observed. Malnupiravir-treated participants aged over 65 years had a lower combined 30-day risk of hospitalization or death, 55 per 1,000 versus 82 per 1,000. A statistically significant difference in 30-day or 31 to 180-day risk of hospitalization or death was not observed between matched nermotrelivir or malnupiravir-treated participants. Incidence of post-COVID symptoms was similar across all comparison groups. The authors conclude that nermotrelivir or tonavir was highly effective in preventing 30-day hospitalization and death, and short-term benefit from malnupiravir was observed in older groups. Significant reductions in adverse outcomes beyond 30 days were not observed with either antiretroviral drug.
Some trials suggest that supervised walking programs for hospitalized patients can improve functional ability after discharge, but little evidence exists regarding their effectiveness under real-world conditions. The next article reports a cluster randomized trial that evaluated the impact of the implementation of a supervised walking program known as STRIDE on discharge to home, length of stay, and inpatient falls. The study occurred at eight Veterans Affairs hospitals from 2017 to 2019 and included over 12,000 hospitalizations of community-dwelling patients 60 years and older admitted for more than two days to a participating medicine ward. The researchers randomly assigned hospitals in two stratified blocks to a launch date for STRIDE and compared outcomes pre- and post-STRIDE implementation. The primary outcome was discharge to home versus elsewhere. Length of stay and inpatient falls were secondary outcomes. The 6,722 patients in pre-STRIDE time periods were similar to the 6,141 patients in post-STRIDE time periods. Adjusted odds of discharge to home were higher among eligible patients hospitalized in post-stride time periods compared to pre-stride. There were no differences observed in length of stay or inpatient falls. Of note, the percentage of patients with any documented walk during a potentially eligible hospitalization ranged from 0.6% to 22.7% over the included hospitals. So greater benefit might be seen with broader implementation. Next is a systematic evidence review that compares the clinical efficacy of invasive and non-invasive diagnostic strategies for the initial assessment of patients with suspected stable coronary artery disease. The researchers searched for and included randomized clinical trials comparing diagnostic strategies for coronary artery disease detection among patients with symptoms suggestive of stable coronary artery disease and applied grade criteria to rate the certainty of findings. They identified 20 trials involving 27,951 participants and six diagnostic modalities, invasive coronary angiography, coronary computed tomographic angiography, stress cardiovascular magnetic resonance imaging, exercise electrocardiography, stress single photon emission computed tomography, myocardial perfusion imaging, and stress echocardiography. Functional tests were grouped into a single node for the primary analyses while being analyzed as separate nodes for the secondary analyses. Compared with direct invasive coronary angiography referral, coronary computed tomographic angiography and functional testing provided no significant difference in the risk of major adverse cardiovascular events and a large reduction in the rate of avoidable angiography. Among non-invasive diagnostic strategies, coronary computed tomographic angiography significantly reduced the risk of major adverse cardiac events and the rate of avoidable angiography compared with functional testing. The worse efficacy of functional testing was mainly driven by the poor efficacy of exercise electrocardiography and stress echocardiography. Limitations include a lack of individual patient data and variation in how each of the trials defined outcomes. But the authors conclude that in patients with suspected stable coronary artery disease, an initial assessment with non-invasive diagnostic strategies is safe and addresses the low diagnostic yield of direct invasive coronary angiography referral. Coronary computed tomographic angiography is among the most effective strategies in terms of both clinical efficacy and accuracy. Medicare Advantage plans are aggressively being promoted to older Americans offering a variety of perks. 
A commentary highlights the potential downsides of these programs, which stand to be lucrative for insurers. The author describes a patient in her late 60s with well-controlled hypertension, obesity with a body mass index of 37, hyperlipidemia on statin therapy, a normal hemoglobin A1c, and spinal stenosis without recent pain. The patient mentioned to her physician, the author, that someone from her insurance company, a Medicare Advantage plan, had visited her home recently. The physician received a letter a week later noting that an advanced practice clinician had visited her patient's home and noted a number of newly diagnosed conditions, chronic pain, morbid obesity, type 2 diabetes with complications, including polyneuropathy. The patient's BMI is less than 40, the threshold for morbid obesity, and her hemoglobin A1c is below what would diagnose diabetes. The patient denied pain, and microfilament testing was normal. What is suspicious is that diabetes with complications and morbid obesity are medical conditions that qualify the patient's insurance plan for higher risk-adjusted payments. The author notes that this risk adjustment creates incentives for documenting additional diagnosis codes, which can lead to higher payments to the plan, incentives that are not present in fee-for-service Medicare. This financial incentive to document more diagnosis codes has led some Medicare Advantage plans to conduct home-based health risk assessments, like the author's patient received, and chart reviews to identify and document the presence and severity of conditions that may be absent from encountered data. The Medicare Advantage program is growing rapidly with nearly half of all Medicare beneficiaries enrolled in the Medicare Advantage plan. This commentary discusses how aggressive coding practices to enhance coding intensity of diagnostic conditions create inefficiencies and lead to overpayments to health insurance plans. Healthcare dollars should be spent improving the health of patients rather than improving the bottom line of health plans. Another commentary discusses potential biases in chatbots and the adverse consequences if and when chatbots become a first touch for many patients. Finally is the video of the virtual forum that Annals and ACP hosted on May 19th. The topic was implications for patients and clinicians now that COVID-19 is no longer classified as a public health emergency. Dr. Michael Tan moderated a very engaging program that featured panelists Dr. Hashish Jha, the White House coordinator of the COVID-19 response, Dr. Roger Bedimo, a professor in the Department of Internal Medicine at UT Southwestern Medical Center and the Infectious Diseases Section Chief at the VA North Texas Healthcare System, and Dr. Carlos Del Rio, the Leon L. Haley Jr. Distinguished Professor of Medicine in the Division of Infectious Diseases at Emory University School of Medicine and the Interim Dean at Emory University School of Medicine. The public health emergency ended this month, but that doesn't mean that COVID-19 is gone. The discussion covered valuable practical information about testing, vaccines, and antiviral therapy that will enable clinicians and their patients to better navigate this new phase of COVID-19. That brings us to the end of this podcast. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll return in two weeks for the next podcast. In the meantime, please go to annals.org to take a closer look at some of the new material I've mentioned. Thanks to Beth Jenkinson, Andrew Langman, and Bernie Turner for their technical support. Brought to you by GSK. Learn about commercial coverage for Shingrix, Zoster vaccine recombinant adjuvanted, by visiting coverageshingrix.com.